As we come to our final sermon in this series of Two Thessalonians, I thought it would be good to recap what we've learnt over the last month. So Chris Scott started off this series on Two Thessalonians 1 and we learnt how Paul describes God's great truth and power and indeed his judgement will overcome the persecutions and trials the Thessalonians experience. Then John in two sermons did 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and a key theme there was the false teachers that teach false things mainly about the second coming. And Paul tells the Thessalonians not to be unsettled but to stand firm in the grace they've been given. And so we come to 2 Thessalonians 3 today where we look at three Christian behaviours, some good, some are bad. And these three behaviours and their related commands and exhortations are, at face value, seemingly disparate topics. They're seemingly unrelated. But let me assure you, I think there's an overarching structure in what Paul is giving to us in 2 Thessalonians 3 that I'll explore towards the end. But first, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the letter to Thessalonians, still incredibly applicable to us today, how we behave as Christians, how we're distinctive. Uh, Do give us hearts and minds to understand and apply this to our church and help me to faithfully preach them. Amen. So following following the outline in your bulletin, uh, the first Christian behaviour that Paul looks at is matters of prayer. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it is with you. So Paul's first matter of consideration for their behaviour is prayer. Now in asking for prayer for his ministry, we should note that in previous chapters Paul establishes his concern and love for the Thessalonians by praying for them. So in 1 Thessalonians uh, verse 3, I pray and thank God for you. In verse 11 of the same chapter, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. In one twelve, we pray for this, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And then in 2.13, we pray and thank God for you. So it's only fair, in a sense, that Paul asks for their prayer for him. What this says to me is that prayer, perhaps the ultimate uh, expression of how we care for one another, is reciprocal. And reading this, I felt quite rebuked. So often I want your prayers, your concerns. How often do I, do we, pray for others? How often do I, do we, look beyond ourselves, our needs, to the needs of others? And I'd suggest this intersection, intercession for others is not a natural tendency. Unless one is maturing in Christ and makes it a priority, Indeed, it is a test of genuine love for one another, as Paul says in Galatians 6, that we carry each other's burdens in life, in church. 
So let me quickly touch on some impediments to prayer, why we don't pray. I guess business of life can be a major impediment to prayer, can't it? But equally, so can be a lack of system. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself repeating the same things. So finding a system is good. I found myself going over that excellent book that Gareth organised for us to study last year, Growing in Prayer by Stephen Steed. It's a great book. Let me encourage you to revisit it. But given John talked about the topic of God's providence in the world last week, i.e. that God designs, orchestrates, has purposes in this world and his purpose is never thwarted and yet man is responsible for his own actions, it's a difficult teaching but it's what the Bible teaches so we need to hold to it firmly. I do wonder if this whole concept of God's sovereignty can muddle our thinking in prayer because we can think that because God is sovereign, involved in all events, he'll do what he wants anyway. So what's the value of prayer if he's all supreme and orchestrating history to a point where he wants? Well, actually, the doctrine of God's sovereignty should do the exact opposite. Because God rules we can have assurance that our prayers will be heard and will be effective. We don't have to beat ourselves up or flagellate ourselves like some religions do. They whip themselves so that their God will be heard. No, we have a God who wants to hear our prayers and our prayers can and do influence how he works in this world. It's precisely because God is faithful in verse 3 that we can have confidence in verse 4 in prayer. Indeed, the late R.C. Sproul, an American Presbyterian, says this about prayer and God's sovereignty. God causes things to change in the world, and they change according to God's sovereign will, which he exercises through secondary means and secondary activities, i.e. uses things in the world to achieve his means. The prayer of his people is one of these means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. So if you were to ask me whether prayer changes things, I will answer with an unhesitating yes. This prayerfulness is important when we see what Paul asks prayer for in verses 1 to 5. Firstly, in verse 1, he asks prayer that the message of the Lord will spread rapidly and be honoured, that he will be delivered from wicked people. There will always be opposition to the gospel, won't there? We see it in Paul's life. We, you will see it in yours if you stand up for the things of, the God, of God. Just ask Andrew Thornburn, who was Essen, president or CEO of Essendon Football Club last year for one day, until it was discovered he was one of those nasty Christians. But be assured, God will look after his people and he will eventually punish the disobedient. God will not be made a fool. And we read in Acts 20 some of the opposition that Paul received. In verse 19 of Acts 20, we read how he endured many trials and tears. Then in verse 23, I know that jail and suffering awaits me in Jerusalem. 
And though Paul was a remarkable person, resilient and incredible teacher, his ministry is bathed in prayer, isn't it? Indeed, he tells the Thessalonians in the first letter to them, pray without ceasing. You see, we and Paul are engaged in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, Paul tells us this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are engaged in spiritual warfare, therefore we need spiritual weapons. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. And one of our chief weapons is prayer. How sad when we ignore it and miss out on its value. So we go to our second point, matters of conduct in your outline, 2A. Then in verse 6, to use a cricketing parlance, Paul bowls a bouncer at some misconduct that was affecting the fellowship of this Thessalonian church. Some were idle, they didn't want to work, they were basically lazy. And they were wanting, in verse 7 and 10, worse, to sponge off others. Now a good question to ask is, how did this come about? How did these Christians think they could sponge off others? Well, I found three theories from the commentaries of how this came about. The first theory is that such people were influenced by the false teachers that John talked about last week in chapter 2, the false teaching that the Lord had already come and established his kingdom on earth, and therefore they regarded, they were told, there's no point in daily work. They had what some would call an overemphasis on the end times, the end times meaning the return of Jesus. They focused on the end times so much they were of little earthly value. Now, notwithstanding that they probably did come under the influence of the false teachers, I've always had a problem with this notion that they kind of dwelt too much on the second coming and this adversely affected their behaviour. And my problem is that the Christians that have influenced me most in my life, have mentored me, have absolutely been influenced by Jesus' return. And you see that in history as well. The Christians that have been done incredible things for God have absolutely understood the significance of the second coming. But anyway, that's what some commentators think may have happened, and I offer it to you. The second possible reason why as uh, some were idle came from Greek culture where great prestige was given to the cerebral, the philosophical pursuits and the mundane aspects of life were disdained. So if you like, the social influences of their age were admired and emulated and the brickies' labourers were disdained. And yet if we understand the biblical view of work, God views all work as equally important. As someone with some profound health issues, I really thank God for doctors, nurses, allied health and administrators. And especially we need to pray for the Christian ones. They work, I perceive, an increasingly difficult space ethically. And yet, Martin Luther thanked God for maidservants, for the cow maid. Martin Luther says this, 
If you ask an insignificant maidservant why she scours a dish or milks the cow, she can say, I know that the thing I do pleases God, for I have God's word and commandment. God does not look at the insignificance of the act, but the heart that serves him in such little things. Hence, there's no divisions amongst us how God sees work. There's no greater or lesser. There's no Greek or Jew. All work is God-honouring if it's done in a certain way. But getting back to the idlers in verse 7, Paul says, follow my example. Even though I could have requested your provisions as your teacher, I didn't. I laboured day and night so as not to be a burden. I should say that this tent-making ministry of Paul's, because that's what he did as a source of income, he made tents, is not prescriptive. And so wherever possible, you should have teachers, pastors like John, fully committed to the ministry that we support. But the third possible reason about how these idlers came about is the Greek concept of patronage, where these idlers, before they were Christians, might have been dependent on some rich Greek patron. You can actually see it today. You might see a rock star or some wrestler come off Tullamarine Airport and they'll have this entourage of family and friends that I presume are on their payroll as well. But the problem with these Greek Christians is when they became Christian, they thought they could transfer this lifestyle of leisure and patronage to other Christians. And Paul's saying, you can't, you've got to work. The reason I labour these possible causes, these three possible causes, is that they can be warnings for our Christian behaviour and conduct. So revisiting the first possible cause of listening to and being persuaded by false teachers, I've had dear Christian friends where this has happened. They've gone down some pet theological rabbit hole and no amount of argument has taken them away from it and it's been very destructive for them and very sad for the church they've been involved in. Or what about the the influence of the Greek culture on idleness in the church? We can lump them together and say that it appears that the surrounding culture had adversely affected the behaviour and mindset of some of the Thessalonian Christians. So we also need to be very careful of the impact of the surrounding culture in this world on us. Yes, we live in the world, but we're not to be of this world. So whatever the cause of the situation, verse 6, they were playing truant from work, weren't they? And such people are commanded to earn their keep in verse 12. And I can qualify this by saying not everybody can do paid work and I guess I'm a case in point due to illness. I can think of another guy I knew by the name of Gordon in another church. His mother was an alcoholic, and Gordon suffered from what's called uh, fetal alcohol disorder. I think that's the right term. Yes, thank you. I'm getting a nod from Janice. And that was quite sad because it had profound effects on Gordon. He not only suffered quite severe cognitive disabilities, but also physical disabilities. He was on a pension and the church largely in love looked after him. But I can still remember Gordon as one of the most enthusiastic church greeters I've ever known. He threw himself into that role. He had found good work. He'd found a role in which he could serve God. Which says we need to broaden our definition of of good work, doesn't it? It's much more than paid work. 
What about a stay-at-home mum or grandparent or dad? They're doing good work for the Lord, aren't they? But getting back to the idol in verse 11, they were disruptive to church life. They were not busy, they were busy bodies, as Paul says. Rather than using their gifts to build up the church as we're commanded to in 1 Corinthians 14, they were meddling in people's affairs in a very unhelpful way. And the impact of these sponges was demoralising to others in the church who were working for a living. And verse 13, Paul encourages those who were doing the good thing not to tire of doing good. So this issue of idleness, of dependency on others, had to be addressed for the good of the church. So Paul gives disciplinary instruction how to deal with such people in verse 14. And the instruction is to exclude them, to stay away from the idols, the lazy in verse 14. Quite difficult in some respects, but it was for the health of the church. But the aim of this disassociation clause, if we can call it that, was to bring them back into the fold. It wasn't punishment for punishment's sake. It was to bring forth repentance, a change of heart that they could become a valuable part of the church. Now let's look a bit wider and go to point 2B of redeeming work. Now we might think this issue of idleness that Paul addresses here as quite odd although I have seen it in churches, because for many of us that are at work and have worked, it is the exact opposite. We can find work very demanding. It can turn us into workaholics. Work can be a difficult workplace. We can have tensions of clients, patients, colleagues, the overall vibe of the workplace. Work can be downright draining and dispiriting. We need to know that God values what we do and where we do it despite these difficulties and wants to renew our work. Though affected by the fall, Genesis 3, the rebellion of mankind, our work is important not only because it feeds ourselves and our family, because God can redeem what we do in work. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross not just for our salvation, to put us right with God, but for all aspects of our lives. Those sinless, Jesus knew what it was to work after the fall. This is implied in Hebrews 2, where it says, For this reason he had to be made like them, us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. I am sure Jesus experienced the frustrations of work. As a carpenter, he would have had difficult customers. He would have known physical and mental tiredness. Just as he shared the frustrations and deprivations of our life in other ways. One of the church fathers said this, What Jesus did not assume, he did not redeem. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. Meaning, in order to redeem work, Jesus had to experience it in its fallenness, in its difficulties, in its trials. And that's a great encouragement. It's a great blessing to us, isn't it? That our Saviour condescended to the difficulties we have in our lives so that we might work differently, view work differently, 
and not just from an earthly sense, but a spiritual perspective. And so let's explore this further in point 2C, the distinctly Christian worker. So how might we be salt and light in our work? And again, our definition of work is very broad. It means really any activity where we can represent the Lord. And as we've got many retirees in this congregation, including myself, I want to think about that because I know you're involved in a raft of, of good works in this community, sporting clubs, community clubs. What about the interactions with your grandchildren? That's good work, how you might impact them for the Lord. How are we to be salt and light in these contexts? Well, it's by following the two greatest commandments cited by Jesus in Matthew 22, where he replies to the question, what are the greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love others as yourself. And this means offering hope to the hopeless. It means being diligent, honest. Uh, In short, it means the righteousness that pleases God. So there's good work for us in retirement, isn't there? An example of post-retirement work comes from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers where you have, I hope you remember, Levites that served God in what was a big tent called the tabernacle and it's where Israel made sacrifices and met God in a sense. And they were given a retirement age but this was not the end of the Levites' work. The purpose was not to remove productive workers from service, it was to redirect their service in a more mature direction And indeed, after retirement, they were still to assist their brothers in the tent of meeting, carrying out their duties occasionally. But also, their judgment, wisdom and insight was used elsewhere. The older Levites transitioned to different ways of serving the people of God. So the modern notion of retirement that consists of ceasing work and devoting time exclusively to leisure is not found in the Bible. I know ill health can affect what we do in retirement, but even then, prayer is a great service, even when we feel we're unable to do much. So let me commend and encourage those of you who are retired in this congregation for the God-honouring contribution and work you do for this church and in the community. Even coming to church is a good ministry. It's saying, I'm going to be numbered with the people of God and listen to the word of God. An important post-retirement work is also growing in our knowledge of God and applying that, our faith and trust of God. It's something we should never cease to do. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God from Romans 13. Hence, we never stop growing in our knowledge of the Lord through his word. God's truths and their application are inexhaustible. Perhaps you might find the Bible hard to study, Get someone to guide you. Perhaps John or one of the elders might be able to help you in that matter. But let's not neglect those here that do have paid work. Let me give you an illustration from our church of of the great value and the redemption of work and what that can be. A few years ago, Session asked me to review Min's position. Min is our uh, administrative assistant for those who don't know. And it really struck me, talking to Min and reviewing what she did, that the title Administrative Assistant doesn't really cut it. 
she does so much more. And if it was me and I could come up with a fancy title, it would be something like uh, Director of Encouragement Systems or something like that for me. Perhaps we should call her that. Because who hasn't been blessed by men? Though very busy in her duties, she will give you her full attention in her friendly self. She understands who she is in Christ and the avenue of blessing that her work can be. Now, Ingrid's not here, but I'm really encouraged by what she does as a GP at Kapuka, helping recruits. She is here. Sorry, sorry, Ingrid. I'm going to embarrass you. Because I know it's a difficult workspace where she has to mediate often between NCOs and recruits. That's a form of blessing of representing God to those people. Let's come to our third point of peaceful matters. In closing the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Now, the peace that Paul mentions here is the free gift of Jesus, verse 19. It's something we can't construct. And this is a kind of classic sign-off in Paul's letters, but it's also much more than that. Because as in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is reminding his readers that what he is telling them to do cannot be achieved by human strength. He is making sure their thoughts are not on their own efforts, but on the Lord himself that grants peace. Now, this injunction of peace in verse 16 has three parts that I quickly want to go through. Firstly, he wants the Lord of peace to give them and you peace because it's the girder of unity in the Thessalonian church as it is for us. Despite the trials and disciplinary matters that Paul's had to wield out and talk about, he wants them to know that they can be at peace with each other. Because our God is a God of peace and we have peace with God. Though once we were enemies with God, Romans 3, we are now his beloved. So this epistle begins and ends with peace quite deliberately. So it is with us. Whatever our differences in St Aidan's, we should have peace with one another. Secondly, the phrase at all times or always in verse 16 as Paul prays that they'll have peace all of the time and not just some of the time. The fact that some believers are causing problems should not change the local church's heart for peace. And thirdly, Paul wants peace in every way. The Greek word way means a turning or a manner. So God wants to give us peace in such a fashion that it affects our customary way of life. It affects the normal way we do things in life. It is to be habitual. So Paul prays that they might have peace by all means. So peace, if you like, is a form of gospel work. It's something we have to work at. It requires us to be intentional in the way we treat each other. In this final part of verse 16, Paul prays the Lord be with you all. Paul is is saying there are never times when the Lord is not with us. Despite the trials and difficult emotions we might experience, the hard reality is God is always not a hard reality. The great blessing is that God is always with us. So Paul, though he's finding it difficult to leave the the, uh, elders at Ephesus, as we read in Acts 20, 
knows that the Lord will be with him as he goes to Jerusalem and his eventual death. God is always with us through the provision of the Holy Spirit, no matter how we feel. So Paul is praying, asking the Thessalonians would embrace their companionship with the Lord in the whole matters before them, in all the matters that have proceeded, because it takes the Lord's presence to sustain peace within the local church. It can't be done by earthly means. At the start of the sermon, I mentioned that there were three sections that were seemingly disparate. They seemed a bit unconnected, and I struggled with them in preparing this sermon, but I can see what I think is an overarching structure, and it is this. The matters of conduct that we talked about in verses 6 to 15 about the idol, which is almost the core of the chapter, I think it has two bookends. The first bookend occurs in verses 1 to 5, where Paul says that because we have a faithful God, he answers prayer. Thus Paul can have confidence in the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians can have confidence in God. So that's the first bookend of that middle section. The final bookend, I think, is what we just read in verses 16 to 18, where Paul describes the peace of God given freely in grace that makes us into a church. So our conduct in the middle bit, if you like, is to be bookended is to be girded by prayer on one end and applying the peace of God in the other. And I think that makes perfect logic. In closing, I want to think about the impossible applications of 2 Thessalonians 3. What do I mean by impossible applications? What I mean is if we've understood 2 Thessalonians 3 properly, we cannot go away and think the following. We cannot go away and think of prayer as a sort of duty that we do in devotions or Bible study. Rather, it is a lifeline for us to thrive in the Christian life and affect God's work on earth. That it's impossible to view work, whether paid or unpaid, secular or gospel, as a daily grind. Though it will have many difficulties and trials, God knows and understands and wants to strengthen us in our work. And finally, that it's impossible to live the Christian life or do church without the peace of God because despite differences between us and sometimes divisions, we are saved by the same God, the same Lord of peace, so that we can share and model this peace with one another. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that... uh, The book of Thessalonians is so real, it describes very real issues and some very difficult matters. Thank you, Lord, that you are supreme sovereign God, the God of, of peace, of prayer and of faithfulness. And we commit this to you. Amen.